Well, Psalm 107, the first verse, is really what the psalm is all about. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy or his grace endures for ever. Now, in listening to my wife Cindy uh, counselling and helping or trying to help people who feel very cut up by things that have happened in life, uh, by their inability to change situations, their desire, strong desire for something which just doesn't seem to happen in this life, I have heard her and overheard her very often try to approach uh, people from the point of view of be grateful for what you've got. You've got more blessings than you realize. And that is so true that if we can be truly grateful for what we have, especially for our spiritual blessings, then really all the other human stuff that we don't have, that we, we may desperately wish to have children or to, to be married or to be in some situation that we are uh, not in and it seems we cannot be in, then I know it, it sounds so trite, but it is so true that if we are grateful and thankful people, to God for what he has given us, then this anger with God, which so many people seem to suffer from, uh, will not press upon us so, so strongly. Now, what is he asking here for us to give thanks to God for? He's asking us to give thanks to God for what he has done in history. And we may say, well, that was back then, that was to other people, what about me? Well, yes, but the whole Bible is really the history of God's grace in dealing with people. And if we can enter into the spirit of it, as these psalms do, particularly uh, the psalms that we're reading at the moment, which keep on going through the history of Israel and praising God for his mercy, this, I think, is a, a key that if we can perceive that, wow, God did that to his sinful people on the shores of the Red Sea, led them through the wilderness when we know from Ezekiel 20 and Acts 7 that they were actually carrying another tabernacle to other gods, uh, God Remphan, etc. Um, that sense of, wow, he was so gracious to them. Quite before you go on to say, yeah, and where's his grace to me, the fact that he has shown grace to others who are all the same members of God's people, that should be meaningful to us. Now, the people of God not only exist at this minute in time, that is, all the believers in Jesus, uh, wherever they are throughout the world at this point in time, but the people of God, from God's perspective, exist historically. That we who are now in covenant relationship with God have this bond with the Israel who had that same covenant relationship with God on the basis of the promises to Abraham, which is the basis of the new covenant that, that we have, uh, that's gone on for thousands of years. And here in the Old Testament we're reading of God's grace to them, and the psalmists are getting really into this and saying, praise the Lord because of the grace that he showed to his people. And as I say, if you perceive the people of God uh, from a historical a time-centered uh, perspective that it goes right back, I suppose, to, to Adam, but certainly to, to Abraham, then suddenly it all becomes more alive. This is what he did for us. Now, if we are totally individually uh, focused, focused upon me and myself uh, and I kind of thing, uh, then you won't, uh, you won't perceive that. It's all, well, what's in it for me?
Well, we are to see ourselves not simply as an individual who is in relationship with the Father and Son, but as a member of this group of people who have been redeemed and were always redeemed and have this hope of ultimate eternity in God's kingdom. Now I'd like to repeat what I've said several times about the formation of the, the Psalter, the book of Psalms. My idea is that reading through these Psalms you can make a case that yes this applies to the time of David, you can make a case that it applies to the time of Hezekiah, you can make a case that it applies to the time of the exiles returning from Babylon. And the question is well what does it refer to? And it can refer to all those situations because I suggest that under inspiration original Psalms, maybe of David or even Moses, were rewritten according to circumstance and <clears throat> therefore you can discern in all of them something relevant to different historical incidents. Now I would say that what we're reading here would have been certainly edited at the time of the return of the exiles uh, to rebuild God's kingdom because he talks verse 2 about the redeemed who have been redeemed out of the hand of the enemy and they have been gathered out of the lands in the east, west, north and south. Now that could uh, really only refer to the, the regathering of the exiles uh, to rebuild the temple. And yet he talks about uh, redemption and verse 4 wandering in the wilderness in a solitary way they found no city to dwell in well yes that could refer to the exiles re returning I suppose you could say across the desert between Babylon and uh, and and Judah and yet more comfortably perhaps to the exodus from Egypt through the wilderness I'd like to just note that they are described as wandering in the wilderness in a solitary place, in a solitary way, that that way was totally lonely, um, they were hungry and thirsty, but, verse 7, they were led by the right way. So, your loneliness, and there is a, a kind of existential, I guess, loneliness in, in each of us, that is the right way that God chose for us to come to his, his kingdom. And he mentions in verse 4, they found no city to dwell in. Well, looking from the point of view of Israel being redeemed out of Egypt and walking through the wilderness, just like our baptism, 1 Corinthians 10, is the, uh, the antitype, I suppose, of Israel going through the, the Red Sea, there we are in the wilderness, walking towards the kingdom, and the way that we're on may be solitary, may be lonely, may be hunger and thirst in that sense, uh, but it is the right way. And it says there that they didn't find a city to dwell in. It could be that Israel in their weakness in the wilderness looked around for a city to dwell in. If they'd have found a city, they would have said, oh yeah, let's, let's stay here, but there was nowhere. And of course, I suppose inevitably the, the mind goes to the words of Hebrews in the New Testament that we have no continuing city because we are looking for one to come for a heavenly Jerusalem that is to come upon the earth. So there is no stability in this life, in this wilderness journey. And although it might seem that somebody has found it because they bought a house when they were young and they cleared their mortgage by middle age and there they are established in the same property for many years, 
from a spiritual sense, we have found no certain dwelling place, because there is always that sense, even, I think, in those individuals and families who appear to be so stable, that I'm moving on. This is not for me. I wish that I could be somewhere else, do something else, wish my life were different, etc. And that sense that we have is all part of this journey that God has given this to us so that we don't settle down, so that we don't think, yeah, well, this is the life, this is the kingdom. The kingdom is ultimately, in a physical sense, still to come. So don't be surprised if you get that sense in your life that I'm not quite happy where I am. I would like to do this or do that or to be like this or just be in a different situation. You know, that's all from God because that's how he's made our lives. We are in the wilderness, don't forget. We're on a journey and therefore we are given no city to, to dwell in in this life. Then verse 8, he breaks out into an appeal. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. I think, and looking at the rest of the chapter, the psalm, I think that this is an appeal to the Gentiles to praise God for his grace to Israel. And at the time of the restoration uh, from Babylon, just as at the time of the exodus from Egypt, there was an appeal, and there was intended to be an appeal to the Gentile world to come and connect with Israel. Our idea may be that God in the Old Testament only worked through Israel. That needs to be balanced against a number of these psalms where David especially, quite radically for his time, invites Gentiles to come into relationship with God on the basis of marvelling at God's grace to him as David and to Israel as his people. And so um, he, he talks about how Israel have sinned, verse 11, they rebelled against the words of God, despised the counsel of the Most High, therefore he brought down their heart with labor, this is very much Israel and Egypt, then they cried unto the Lord, verse 13, in their trouble, he saved them out of their distress, brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, broke their bands in sunder. Well, this is very much their exodus from Egypt, but it is also, in a sense, their exodus from, from Babylon. And then verse 16, breaking the gates of brass and cutting the bars of iron in sunder. This uh, is very much the exodus from, uh, from Babylon, with its uh, famous uh, gates of brass. And the whole point is that God brings them low, through their own sin, and then he saves them. Then he goes on to appeal, I would say, specifically to the Gentiles in verse 23, they that go down to the sea in ships that do business in great waters. That more comfortably refers to Gentiles. Judah at that time were not known as the great international uh, sailors maybe the, the merchants of, of Tyre or Tarshish, but they were all, all Gentiles. And he says that they see, verse 24, the works of Yahweh and his wonders in the deep, and how he also sends forth his word to create stormy winds uh, and great uh, storms so that they turn to God. Verse 28, then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distress. Now this is talking, as I say, about Gentile sailors, but remember that Hebrew word translated trouble. It's the same word 
four times already been used about Israel. Um, Verse uh, 6, They cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. That's talking about Israel in verse 6, but in verse 28 it's applied to these Gentile sailors. Uh, Verse 13, They cried unto the Lord in their trouble, he saved them out of their distresses. And verse 19, They cry unto the Lord in their trouble, he saves them out of their distresses. Now, this is being applied now to these Gentile sailors. And again, the the Hebrew word translated distresses, it's the same word. So then, I think what he's saying is, look how God dealt with Israel. He brought them up and down, uh, partly because of their own sin, partly because of his hand in their lives, to make them feel they were on a journey uh, towards his kingdom. And now, you Gentile sailors, this applies to you. And you will cry unto Yahweh verse 28, in your trouble. So he's appealing to the Gentile world to realize that also what they are going through is in essence what Israel has been through. And this, I think, is the basis of our appeal to this world, that look what God did for me and to me because of my own sin, because partly of his hand in my life, but I am on a journey towards his kingdom. But finally, in the a, in a bigger picture, we can finally attach meaning to event, that even through suffering for, for your own sin, for your own bad decisions, if you like, God is still there. And he is leading you onwards, that it is not random, it is not simply, well, I failed and therefore God kind of punishing me. No, God is leading them on this journey out of Egypt, out of Babylon and so forth towards his kingdom. And he's saying to these Gentile sailors, look, that can happen to you. And of course, it's very similar here with the situation with with Jonah, where, I mean, it must there must be some connection, must there not? Because those, sol- those sailors also are recorded in Jonah as crying unto Yahweh, um, despite uh, in the midst of this great big storm that threatens to kill them. And naturally, we think also of the disciples on the, on the Sea of Galilee. And they cried unto the Lord Jesus in their trouble. He brought them out of their distress. And then verse 29, he makes the storm a calm. The waves are still. 30, and so he brings them to their desired haven. This is exactly what happened with the disciples. It is prophetic of them. And of course, they later inevitably would have thought about these words because certainly how the record is written in the Gospels, it is exactly, exactly the situation here with the Lord Jesus manifesting the Lord God uh, to them, arising and making the storm a calm, the waves become still, and they immediately find themselves at their desired haven. The point is that they were intended to learn, whether they did or not at the time, I don't know, but I'm sure they did later, they would have thought about this psalm, and the point was that how God worked in history with Israel Uh, coming out of Egypt, coming out of Babylon, lifting them up, bringing them down in life, this yo-yo effect in life, that's just like those waves rising and falling, crying unto the Lord and being 
uh, rescued and then suddenly being transferred to their desired haven which for Israel coming out of Egypt and out of Babylon was the restored kingdom of God on earth in Israel and that is the same real end point for for us it's almost as if um, maybe this particularly speaks about us in the last days that there will be a shortening of the days that if we cry to God strongly enough suddenly that's it the the gap between us and the desired haven is suddenly in a moment uh, ended and so verse 32 let them and uh, or 31 oh that men would praise the Lord I'm suggesting that this is talking about the Gentiles 32 let them exalt him also in the congregation of the people that is God's people Israel so I'm saying that this psalm like many of the psalms is an appeal an appeal in song maybe because they were all songs these psalms um, an appeal to the Gentile world through the medium of music and song to experience what God has done for Israel for themselves and to realize that in essence what Israel have gone through in their history and what individuals have gone through in their history is actually talking directly to us and this is where Bible history is so unique that out of it there comes an appeal to every one of us to realize that this in essence is me and that is why it is not simply dead history it is a direct appeal to us so he he talks verse 36 uh, about preparing a city for habitation that's very much the uh, return of the exiles to prepare uh, Jerusalem and verse 37 they're going to sow the fields plant vineyards which may yield fruits of increase and that is what they did when the exiles returned and yet we know from Malachi and Haggai that they looked for a good harvest promised in verses like this and in many of the restoration prophecies and they didn't find it because God sent a drought and that was because the potential that he had enabled they did not experience because all they wanted was their vineyard they didn't want to see that they were part of a bigger program that was ultimately leading them towards God's kingdom and that can so much be the case for us that we can expect some kind of material blessing from God and we can enjoy the material blessing of being in the ecclesia being in the the community of God's people without realizing or without getting the point that actually it's not all about that that this is just part of a wider journey and I am not alone it's not all about me it is about the community the group of God's people as a group and so verse 41 he sets the poor on high from affliction and makes him families like a flock this is emphasized a couple in a couple of scriptures about Israel coming out of Egypt that in another psalm it says he set the solitary in families and I think that is the significance of some of those apparently very boring uh, genealogy lists that you have in in numbers where we read in the book of numbers about the, the numbering of the people and that there were so many of them and so many in this tribe so many in that family etc and yet there would have been people who were solitary who didn't have a family who maybe after all those years in Egypt 
were not really sure what tribe they were actually from. And yet they were given a tribe and a family. In the New Testament, the Lord Jesus says that those who forsake uh, things like family and, and material advantage in this world will be given in this life such things. Fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, families, and in the world to come, eternal life. Now, how does that fulfill? How does that work out? Well, I would suggest it works out within the ecclesia. From where do we find uh, this new family? From where do we find brothers and sisters and parents to replace those that we lost because of our faith in Christ? We find it in the ecclesia. And yet, of course, many complain that they don't. Well, that may be partly their fault or our fault, um, and it may partly be the dysfunction of the ecclesia in not providing that. And yet, that certainly is the idea, that within the family of God's people, we will find this new family for ourselves. And I'd just like to uh, conclude by pointing out verse 40. He pours contempt upon princes. And yet, verse 41, he sets the poor on high from affliction. This is one of a whole load of verses throughout the Bible where God despises material advantage. And we are to take that seriously. That the gospel is for the poor, the poor in spirit. And the idea that the wealthy and the powerful in this world are therefore the place to be, the ones to be, the ones to pretend to, the ones to uh, have as your your final uh, sort of aim, that I'd love to be like that guy with his fleet of cars and his mansions, uh, etc. That it's not just that we should just uh, grip ourselves and say, no, 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 don't think like that. If, as another psalm says, if, if riches come your way, well, don't set your heart upon them. No, it's beyond that. It is actually a despising of material advantage. And that is, I submit, a major theme uh, throughout the Bible uh, of despising material advantage. That that? No, that's not for me. Why would I want that? Because salvation is to the poor, at least the poor in spirit. And, as I say, if riches increase, as David says in another psalm, will set not your heart upon them. They also shall fly away, and that is not the essence of, of our life before God now. So then, here we are, surrounded by our particular web of circumstance and our situation in life, and we are to realize that that is not actually totally unique, that God has set up life in such a way that nobody has a completely uh, unique, unheard of ride in life, that we have all this Bible history in order to show us that God has worked according to a plan in the past and that human lives fit in to a general uh, way of, uh, a, a general sort of uh, set of uh, principles that God works by. And from that point of view, as Paul says to the Romans, we, through uh, the scriptures, find patience, and we find comfort from the Scriptures. How do we find comfort, if you like, from opening your Bible and reading it? Well, I'm not saying that comfort jumps out of every verse, just if you open the Bible. Uh, it does sometimes, but uh, I, I think his idea is that by perceiving the, the hand of God in history, in the history of his people, you realize, you start to perceive that I am not alone.
and that actually God has a purpose for me that although the, the waves rise up and they go down and although it is a solitary way through the wilderness this is the right way